Welcome, viewers and listeners, to another episode of All the Rage. Nick Don here with a short editorial note before we get into the episode. Uh, subsequent to recording this episode, but prior to its release, a sort of Billy Graham bombshell has dropped. Not something I expected to say in 2022, but here we are. Uh, in 2002, some of the Nixon tapes were released that recorded discussion between Billy Graham and Richard Nixon following the National Prayer Breakfast in 1971, in which Richard Nixon said some uh, highly anti-Semitic remarks. Billy Graham uh, agreed with these, or at least did not object to them, and at the time went on a bit of a, a media apology tour saying he regretted the remarks. Um, and it, So it ended up as a bit of a, a stain and a bit of a footnote in Billy Graham's career. But today... September 11th, 2022, the uh, full audio recording from that discussion that Billy Graham had with President Nixon has been released, and it, it contains a lot worse than was previously known, uh, particularly from Billy Graham himself, who really gets into some virulently anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theorizing, uh, makes some remarks about uh, Hitler was right, you, you Never want to hand it to Hitler, but Billy Graham said he had the right idea, essentially, uh, just went about solving the problem in the wrong way. So we will not be including those uh, comments in the recording of our episode, but we will link to an article about it and to the recording uh, hosted elsewhere on YouTube. So if you are interested, you can check that out. A second editorial note, in recent episodes, we've had some uh, less than ideal audio conditions. You might have noticed some some crackling and some volume issues going from Thomas talking to when I'm talking. I believe we've got that solved with hardware setup. So hopefully that will be uh, better in the future. There's a little bit of that in this episode, but I I don't think I don't think it'll be anything you'll mind. But with that, let's get into today's episode discussing Billy Graham's anti-communist crusades. Ladies and gentlemen, all over the world today, the specter of communism is not only a haunting reality, but communism today is sweeping from one end of the world to the other and infiltrating every nation of the world. I believe today that the battle is between communism and Christianity, and I believe the only way that we're going to win that battle is for America to turn back to God and back to Christ and back to the Bible at this hour. Welcome to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. This is the second part in a mini-series with a number of parts to be determined, looking at the last uh, 100-ish years of development of the American Christian far right. Uh, we started last time talking about the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which took us up to the 1920s into the 1930s. And we are going to move directly from there into talking about some of the developments of the 1940s going into and then out of the Second World War, a time when uh, the corporate world really got its hands into uh, shaping what uh, American good old-fashioned uh, conservative Christianity and religion would look like. Before we get to the discussion, how are you, Thomas? I'm doing well. It's been a good week. Uh, uh, lots of stuff in the news uh, following our episode on Orban and um, the president and, you know, FBI raids and all that. But uh, personally, I'm, I'm doing well. You, How are you? <laughs> I, I'm good. To let the listeners in a little bit into the creative process, uh, we actually recorded the Orban episode. Was it the night of the, the raid or the day after the raid? The and night of. Considered... Yeah. Yeah, the night out. So it was a few, a couple of hours afterward when we started recording, and we thought, well, with well, I thought, well, with 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 editing and turnaround time, and we're not going to get this up until Monday morning. Uh, is anybody still going to be talking about this then? 
<laughs> it turns out, actually, they are. <laughs> it turns out. Of course, I couldn't have known that there would be, you know, six plot twists since then with uh, Merrick, Merrick Garland calling his bluff and then himself insisting that they would publicize the subpoena and the uh, receipt of all things that were taken. And then the subpoena mentioning uh, nuclear codes and uh, double top secret, like, things you you have to literally go into a skiff to be able to look at the documents. And then somehow they uh, ended up in Donald Trump's basement. <laughs> Not to mention, you know, armed attacks on uh, FBI buildings. And it's been a week since we released that episode. Although by the time this comes out, it will have been five or four. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, as a as a podcast listener, I've always found the concept of seasons very frustrating because I don't listen in seasons. I listen, you know, weekly or or every Monday, every Wednesday, like whatever the schedule is. Uh, but as a podcast recorder, as a <laughs> podcast creator, I'm starting to understand why you you know build up a season's worth and then just uh, release them in drips and drabs. <laughs> it is exhausting to try to keep up. It is. It is. Trying to think what's going to be in the news four weeks from now. We're hoping that people remember what we're talking about. But yeah, I'm well. You you doing well? How's life? <laughs> I am doing well. Life is good. As people who are following me on Twitter know, I've been... Ron, Ron Sider died recently. Yes. And from numerous, numerous angles in the, in the conservative media, but not least of all from uh, Al Mohler. Al Mohler just dancing on Sider's grave, publishing a, you know, what was supposed to be a sort of retrospective... But the, the bulk of it is, here's why Ron Sider was wrong, and here, here's why his entire project is a, is a failure and a threat to our way of life. And in that, he positively cites, and I've heard several other people uh, from other places positively cite, a rebuttal that David Chilton wrote to Ron Sider's, uh, probably the book he's most well known for, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Well, Chilton wrote this book called Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. <laughs> and it's published by uh, the or the Institute of Christian Economics, which is uh, sort of a, it's a Reconstructionist publisher, Reconstructionist Dominionist publisher uh, based out of Austin, Texas. It's basically a Christian libertarian printing house, but it printed Gary North, and also Chilton and some others. And man, reading through this book is just absolutely eye-opening to how just out there and unashamed the Dominionist or the Reconstructionist movement was in the 70s and 80s um, and early 90s when Chilton is you know initially writing this and then making his edits because each time Cider releases you know a 10th anniversary edition then Chilton has to go and release his uh, 10th anniversary edition of his rebuttal uh, which Cider I think never never paid at time of day never deigned to respond because you know with with elements this fringe I'm sure he was thinking that uh, to respond would be to to legitimate the debate somehow but just just unapologetically arguing for the superiority of a slave-based system and he argues among other things I'm, this is not going to be a david chilton episode i promise but among other things he argues that god instituted slavery in the old testament specifically in order to teach the people not to have a quote-unquote slave mindset because, you know, if, if you're free and you have a slave, that teaches you the value of freedom, I guess. But also that, you know, slavery, as he argues, is a superior system, you know, just morally and ethically to a welfare state. Because if you're on welfare, you're a slave to the federal government, he argues. And I, I'm not exaggerating. That's ex explicitly his argument. And so replace welfare with biblical slavery. And also replace the prison system with biblical slavery or debt peonage. And Al Mohler is just like, oh, yeah, great book. <laughs> Completely rebuts cider. Unbelievable. But yeah, uh, which on one hand is sort of surprising because Al Mohler has at least been able to maintain sort of the facade of respectability uh, over the past few years, didn't go all in on Trump until his second term, <laughs> second uh, right. you know, run. Um, 
he, uh, he had to take four. He had to take four years to really assess the guy and then think, okay, I'm in. Yeah, right, right. Um, but yeah, is it? Uh, on the other hand, it's it's not at all surprising because you know Mueller is basically anything at this point that's you know anti-liberal uh, in any shape or form. Mueller is pro that he just seems to shift with where wherever he sees that he can maintain power and influence. But yeah, that's still still disappointing to see somebody from the nation's largest uh, Protestant seminary promoting uh, a book that that promotes that. So yeah, sounds like you've had a fantastic week diving, diving into that. It's what I call leisure reading. <laughs> Some people play Xbox. You read Dominionist literature. <laughs> oh, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna read everything the Institute for Christian Economics ever published. I'm just fascinated by these uh, figures. <laughs> well, you mentioned they they are sort of a uh, um, Christian libertarian publishing house, which ties in nicely with the uh, our topic well, for today. Yep, descended directly from the same tradition we're talking about. Yeah. Which is sort of why we're having this conversation, right? Because a lot of the stuff that we are seeing playing out prominently today uh, is not new um, and has uh, deep roots in in history. And so we're sort of looking at the genesis of the the modern Christian far right. And I think one of the things that's fascinating is as you look at the history, as we're going to do in this episode, the similarities are striking similarities in the language similarities in the outlook similarities in the positions these are these are not debates that are being had for the first time this is not the first time that uh christian conservatives are you know screaming at the top of their lungs about socialism and communism and marxism uh and all of that right this is this has sort of been a record on repeat for those people who've been paying attention to the history um, if you haven't, then it might seem like this is a new threat. This is a, a new conversation. But I think one of the reasons we're doing this is to illustrate that these are conversations that have been happening for now almost 100 years. So let's talk about the reemergence of the Christian right following the, their sort of shrinking away a little bit in the aftermath of the Scopes Monkey trial, uh, which is just it's perceived uh, as, a, as a real embarrassment for the fundamentalist movement. Yeah. So after after the Scopes trial, religious conservatism or you know the the Christian right, the the fundamentalist side of it, sort of goes into hiding, and they stop what they had been doing, which were um, a fight to take over the denominations and to take over the institutions of higher learning. Uh, two two missions that they largely failed. Right. 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 Yeah, and, and even their their political mission uh, with with evolution in schools was sort of a political mission to take over some of the political machines. Um, but yeah, embarrassed, they, they sort of go underground for a while. Um, and it really seems as if for a time that the, the social gospelers sort of win the day. Uh, the social gospel as a movement kind of ends around 1920 and middle of the First World War, but its influence really doesn't. And a lot of historians that I've seen write about the, the modernist movement and the social gospelers in particular uh, really do tie that to the, the way that World War I just crushes any sense of optimism, both optimism about human nature and optimism in the, you know, we can come together with these sophisticated bureaucratic apparatuses uh, like League of Nations, whatever, and you know, come together, work together to solve our problems. And World War One, uh, especially in, in Europe for the European participants, but also in the United States, just completely crushes that sense of, of optimism. And there are a lot of a lot of theological trends or yeah, yeah, theological trends sort of flow out of that. But one of them is a a real stepping away from the social gospel framework. Right. Right. Um, but it was big enough in its time that, that people who grew up sort of under its tutelage uh, remained influenced by the ideals, the vision of it. One of those people was actually Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So as, as we know, the United States went into a deep economic depression in uh, the late 1920s and early 1930s. 
sort of the the glory days of industry um, failed. You know, Americans are now uh, in deep economic depression, um, and all of the the glory that was coming from capitalism, um, you know, the, that sort of falls away. Uh, Roosevelt gets uh, elected to the presidency for the first time in uh, 1933 is when he begins his presidential term, famous for his uh, New Deal, uh, how he sort of instituted all of these social programs to pull America out of the Depression. But what's notable is that Roosevelt was a student uh, was heavily influenced by teachings from the social gospel um, in his uh, schooling and his upbringing. And so one of his biographers actually affirmed that uh, the New Deal can sort of be understood as, uh, quote, the political expression of Roosevelt's faith. And for a long time, it worked really well. He was very popular uh, with Americans, won an unprecedented and um, repeated third term, you know, and did a lot in terms of growing the size of the government, in terms of social funding for various programs. Um, so not only was he a student of the social gospel, um, but one of his right-hand men was uh, a man by the name of Harry Hopkins. He was the administrator for New Deal programs. Um, he was a Methodist who grew up with social gospel teachings. His wife, Eleanor, was was a student of social gospel things, the secretary of treasurer, Francis Perkins, for his entire term, was brought up under social gospel teaching. So what we see in the New Deal is this um, sort of political vision of the social gospel. So we see labor reforms, we see socialized uh, incentives to just help bring up the, the lowest of people who have been so crushed by the Depression. And as you can imagine, this did not go over very well for the leaders of industry, for, for big business. Uh, not only was the Great Depression itself really bad for their, their public image, um, but Roosevelt's uh, whole campaign, right, in terms of painting these guys as the bad guys. So basically the entirety of the 1930s, you've got the leaders of big business who are investing um, all kinds of money and resources into public relations campaigns to try to bring free enterprise back into um, good favor among the, the American public. And really, for a long time, it failed. So that they're, they're spending all of this money to, to promote themselves and, and to get the American public to, to buy into the vision of free enterprise. But it was... It was really not well received. And so Jim Farley, who was the uh, chairman of the Democratic Party at the time, made a joke. And he said that the American Liberty League, which was one of these organizations formed to rehabilitate the image of uh, industry and, and free enterprise. Uh, he said that it really should have been called, quote, the American Cellophane League, first, because it's a DuPont product. And second, because you can see right through it, end quote. Um, in other words, everybody knew that this was just rich people trying to, you know, rehabilitate their own image. And so leaders of industry were like, well, we need somebody else who can be our spokesperson, somebody else who the American public trusts that can help rebuild trust in um, American capitalism, in big business and free enterprise. And so who did they turn to? Well, they turned to uh, clergy. Uh, it became the role of clergy. Uh, they selected a few influential clergy members, one of which was, was James Fifield. James Fifield was a Congregationalist minister out in California, um, one, of, you know, one of the very first what we might call megachurch pastors of his day, uh, pastoring a church of about 4,000 people at the time, which was, which was unprecedented. And he becomes sort of this unpredictable voice for American big business, free enterprise, and quote-unquote freedom, and becomes champion for this new movement of politically conservative Christians in partnership with corporate America to revitalize American enterprise over against um, democratic New Deal policies, which they tried very, very hard to label as communism, as socialism, as collectivism, all of the scare words that we sort of hear still thrown around today regarding um, any kind of democratic policy.
it's incredible uh, for several reasons, but one, it's incredible to to think of America ever doing anything as far left as the New Deal <laughs> again. Like, so we're, when we're talking about, you know, communism today, we're talking about things so much more politically conservative than what FDR was doing. <laughs> but at the time, FDR was having to fend off criticisms from both the left and the right because... Uh, you know, actual socialists looked at the New Deal programs and said, "And said, oh, this is a very effective band-aid to keep capitalism limping along and not actually give us the things that we need <laughs> or institute you know, actual socialism. And, you know, some of your real purist socialists and socialist sympathizers in the United States at the time said we should oppose this project because we're going to we're going to get revolution a lot sooner if we stop putting band-aids on capitalism. <laughs> And, you know, this is not not too many decades after literal revolution in Russia, which is what uh, ever, you know, everyone defending capitalism is terrified of. But then he's also getting it from the right saying, no, this is socialism. And, this, and so you shouldn't institute it. Right. Part of the reason also that they selected the clergy is, you know, so surveys at the time showing that the you know, most influential person in almost any community was still clergy. But there's a problem, as ev you know, as evidenced by the, as we were discussing in the fundamentalist versus modernist controversy, all the all the ministers, all the clergy, they're a bunch of liberals, right? They're all these seminary trained and these modernist institutions. Um, a large percentage of them are, you know, they were raised on social gospel, and a large percentage of them are literally members of the socialist party. Right. Right. And voted for Eugene Debs. Right. And so you have a huge problem if the most influential person in any community is the local clergy, because they're a bunch of pinkos anyway. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, so that's what makes Fifield so interesting is because theologically, Fifield is actually very, very liberal. And he receives criticism from some of his more theologically conservative counterparts. But he uh, he's sort of. In a way, he's like yeah. Carl Carl McIntyre hates him. Right, right. Yeah, Carl McIntyre hates yeah. him. Yeah, I, I mean, in a way, he he's he's a proto Joel Osteen because he's not. And I think this is something I want to draw attention to uh, at a few points through this is you know taking a look at the long shape of all of this. The the fundamentalists kind of are beaten back, they retreat, they begin inst creating separate institutions. Yes. It's around this time the Dallas Theological Seminary is established, which is the dispensationalist headquarters, very influenced by the Schofield Bible. And I think it was one of Schofield's um, colleagues who, who established it, and also Bob Jones University. And some of the, you know, not your Ivy Leagues, not your real prestigious schools, but some schools that had been started you know, uh, roughly around the time of the Civil War. So schools that at this point had been around for 50 or so years, so they're younger than some of your more elite institutions, but that had been founded um, by the Methodists, by the Northern Baptists. Uh, they actually do get sort of taken over uh, by the fundamentalists uh, during this time. So one historian writing about the you know broad scope of this time period uh, describes it a fundamentalist colonization of the upper Midwest because, yeah. yeah. you know, they couldn't get the Ivy Leagues on the coasts, but there are all these schools. Uh, Moody Bible Institute yep. is another one. Um, so 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 that's going on. So in a lot of ways, Fifield is not a direct inheritor of the fundamentalist. They can kind of pluck him Correct. out. Right. And as we're going to see later, uh, Billy Graham really is the same a figure in the same tradition, yes. right? He's he's not he doesn't grow up with these, you know, or as part of the fundamentalist modernist battles. He's a little young for that, and also at a real reluctance for formal theological education. Right. And so he largely can just be pulled in and function as what would you call Fifield a a, a figure? He's not just a figurehead; he's the face, right? Because he's not he's not just a figurehead because he's he's actively he believes in it. He is a political conservative. He is anti-communist and he 
is, I mean, he's very innovative and clever with the kinds of uh, things that he does, the kinds of approaches that he takes. So he's very much in the, in the driver's seat, but he's also sort of delivering more broadly than just his kind of his own personal narrow interest. Correct. Right. And Correct. so the fundamentalist movement can really just sort of coast in his coast in his wake or um, right. they can really uh, draft off of his off of his performance. Right. So so there's really so two sort of streams that are happening, right? You you have the in in some cases the, the very theological purists among the fundamentalists who are just slowly you know, regrouping and building their base and, and setting their institutions. And then you have this, this sort of opportunist, I, I would say Fifield is really sort of an opportunist in a lot of ways, and, and especially the people who fund him, these capitalists, uh, the, these leaders of industry sure. um, who are opportunists, who see an opportunity to use people like Fifield. Um, and so he, he's not really, he's not a theological conservative. As a matter of fact, um, one of the things, I guess we should probably mention this now, a lot of the the information that we're talking about is coming from Kevin Cruz's book, uh, "One Nation Under God: How Corporate America Invented uh, or Invented Christian America." And so, I guess as a caveat, we're recording this in in 2022. We are well aware that uh, Kevin Cruz has been accused, um, it seems credibly accused, of plagiarism in some of his early work, his dissertation. Um, so, before anybody discredits everything that we're saying here because we're relying on Kevin Cruz's work. Um, we, we don't think that his accusations of plagiarism degrade the, the quality of the, the f factualness of what he reports in, in one nation under God. We've got these competing, we've got these parallel streams, sort of these opportunists who are opportunists who are using people like Fifield uh, to promote a message of um, political conservatism anti-democratic party policy, anti-New Deal, um, anti-communist, anti-socialist messaging, because that's good for communism. But not everybody who is politically conservative is, are, is a theological purist. So Fifield is a, is a good example of that. But what ends up happening, and we alluded to this in the last episode, is that these organizations start to work around the the traditional institutions right where so they're not they're not going necessarily after the seminaries or clergy are attending seminary they are targeting them directly they're identifying clergy in every major city who they think might be sympathetic to their cause and they are sending them periodicals or sending them literature um and it's very interesting when you when you read the sort of rationale behind it, the clergy are actually fairly perceptive. And so when the when the corporatists tried pandering to the to the clergy, the clergy kind of saw right through it. And so with Fifield and others, I said we we need to come at it in a more oblique sort of manner. So we're going to write to them, and we're going to have these ideas sort of loosely threaded together, but it has to be them putting it together and realizing that they sort of believe this thing all along. So they're, they're sending material literature and all of these things to clergy in all of these cities about um, the dangers of uh, socialism. And it's really calculated. So uh, one of the, one of the narratives talks about Fifield and one of the radio programs that he put on. And, and initially it was really, um, it was vocally outspoken against the American Democrats and his lawyer comes alongside and he says, you know what? I think you're being too on the nose with this. What you need to do instead is you need to talk about uh, what's happening. Some, some pick some really negative examples from other countries around the globe and then let people thread this together. Like, Oh, that might happen here. Which, if anybody's paying attention, is still the playbook today, right? You know, you look at Venezuela, you look at any other, you know, socialist country, and well, look what happened over there. You look at Cuba, look at Venezuela. Um, but a really targeted mission to the clergy to get them to start spreading this message that to be Christian 
is to be pro-free enterprise, really rooted in this idea of individualism. And so a lot of the messaging becomes Christianity is all about individual salvation. And therefore, to be a good American is to oppose anything that undercuts individual autonomy and agency and effort um, and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And so there's this really this marrying between individual industriousness on the, on the personal political side and individual salvation on the religious side and saying that these two things are two sides of the same coin. Um, and it's a very, very successful campaign. Uh, you see, you know, this message just begins to promulgate throughout congregations all across the country. Um, and in Americans' minds, to be a good American is to be a good Christian, and to be a good Christian is to oppose socialized medicine, socialized welfare, socialized labor, um, you know, so that they go after the labor unions and they go after um, things like socialized medicine and they go after any kind of welfare because all of these things reek of collectivism, which they're told is inherently anti-Christian. Well, Billy Graham really fits that model, too, of someone who's plucked. Uh, I think they saw his, yeah. I think Fifield also is a sort of a charismatic speaker, is uh, a striking, you know, good-looking guy. Um, and the, the same things in Billy Graham, like he's this very distinctive looking, I don't know if I would say good looking, but what, what do people always call him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, he, he, he certainly had, had an, but, yeah. an attractive quality, whether that's, you know, like, uh, stereotypical attractiveness, but he certainly his, he had an, uh, an aura. In pro wrestling, they call it yeah, the yeah, yeah. factor. Right. Even if it doesn't matter how many of the technical skills you have, if you don't have the it factor, then you're not going to pop with crowds. Whereas if you're someone like my guy, the Macho Man Randy <laughs> Savage, people will remember you uh, for generations to come. And Billy Graham, uh, not not superstar Billy Graham, the pro wrestler, but Billy Graham, the evangelist, uh, ha had that in spades. And he was plucked, I think, pretty early into leadership. And in fact, tried to be they tried to push him into leadership roles that he didn't want. Um, and uh, it was an heir to the fundamentalist movement. The president of uh, Northwestern Bible Institute, is that the name of it? Basically, at his deathbed, gave Billy Graham, like he passed on his title to Billy Graham uh, to be president of uh, Northwestern. And Billy Graham didn't really want to, but kind of felt like he had to. And, but he uh, was able to exchange it for basically saying, okay, I'll be your president in title and I'll raise money for the college, but I'm going to go preach some uh, evangelism tours. And he'd spend 10 months out of the year just doing these uh, evangelism, you know, before the crusades, before he had uh, uh hour of decision or anything like that. As a real, really young man, he was uh, kind of thrust into uh, a leadership position, but his first position, and I think this is interesting to talk about, just contextualizing the social life of the times, but his very first position uh, in the church or as an you know, adult working in the church was uh, he worked for Youth for Christ in 1945. And if I remember correctly, 1947 or 1949 was the largest youth gathering in the 20th century in the United States. Um, but the the youth movement, I mean, this was the this was the absolute crest of the youth movement. Um, and then the I think the the GI Bill and the the introduction of student loan programs make it very easy for more and more young adults to uh, go straight into college out of high school, and that kind of changes what the youth culture was in the United States. But it was this novel thing in the 1920s, in the early 20s, like young adulthood becomes this distinct phase of life uh, that it really in the U.S. hadn't been seen as before. You just went straight from childhood to adulthood. And so the I, the existence of the young adult becomes this thing, and churches really jump on it with you know young people's societies and young people's conferences, and they begin producing periodically, periodicals specifically for young people. And it becomes this real organizing block. There's all these politics, these political movements that like young people are going to try to change, you know, change laws in various areas, 
and yeah, eventually that becomes campus culture in the in the fifties and sixties. But this set of decades just had this kind of loose, mobile, organizational network through young people's societies, and that's where Billy Graham gets his start doing like evangelistic tours. And at least ostensibly in the beginning, it's all sort of apolitical. You know, he's just preaching a, a very hollowed out salvation message, but it doesn't take long at all before the politics. And I, maybe it was there from the beginning and I'm just not as familiar with his early, uh, his early spiel, what his pitch was, but virtually his entire career, it is so striking to go back and see how much he is infusing politics into the the very core of his evangelistic pitch, right? He's speaking to Los Angeles not long after Russia had successfully uh, tested its first nuclear weapon. And that's that's his pitch right there, is we, you know, the, the, the Ruskies could bomb us any minute. Uh, he did not call them Ruskies, I don't believe. <laughs> okay, so, but... That, that's the, the core of his pitch. We could be dead any minute. This entire city could go up in flames, the atomic bomb, the godless communists. And that really continues for decades, you know, until, until he suddenly has to start addressing like the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. And that becomes a thing that he focuses on. Um, and then, his, and by then his, his ties to, the Republican Party in particular uh, and Republican presidents are, are so well-hewn and well-established. But those early days when he almost comes across, you know, in the 40s and 50s as just sort of pure evangelism, you go back and listen to those and it's it's not at all. It is so overtly political and, is, and specifically anti-communist. Like so much ire for the idea of the quote-unquote godless right. communist. Right. And that um, one of the things that Cruz talks about specifically is that um, one of the main themes in his message wasn't just uh, international communism, but the creeping communism in the United States. So he um, I don't know if it's surprising or not, but he rails regularly mm -hmm. against labor unions. It basically, basically just says that if you're in a labor union, you, you can't be Christian, that you are, you're conspiring against your employer, you're being selfish. Um, so just speaks very harshly uh, against labor unions and, and anything that could be perceived as creeping socialism in the United States as well. So, so here's one quote from Cruz. Um, in, in one rally, he, he said that the, the Garden of Eden was a paradise with, quote, no union dues, no labor leaders, no snakes, no disease. He also said in another place that a truly Christian worker would, quote, not stoop to take unfair advantage, end quote, of his employer. So he, he really, he, you know, again, you have this individual, right? Any sort of collective bargaining goes against uh, individual salvation as well as individual uh, industriousness that our, our nation is based under the Christian principles of individualism. Um, and, and this becomes a, a key theme in Graham's message. And it works so well, I think, because he is sincere in his religious belief of individual salvation, right? And so he becomes a really great spokesperson to hitch this message of individualism, which the corporatists are funding uh, over and against democratic policies. But, you know, it, it's hard to say when you, when you look back at, at Graham, was he, was he himself opportunistic or was he just, you know, an ideologue who happened to be in the right place at the right time and saw these people who were platforming him as opportunities to spread the gospel. Right. Um, and in this case, I know I'm, so, which I'm kind of cynical, I, I but I kind of think it's the latter. Usually mm -hmm. I, I tend, I tend to think people are a little bit more, you know, cynical and um, opportunistic, but I, I almost kind of think that Graham was probably the latter and was just pleased to have these opportunities and didn't maybe necessarily think that deeply about them. Yeah. I suspect I suspect that's the case. That's, or at least I should say, that's kind of my reading as well. You know, it's re it's really wild to see uh, Niebuhr's uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's 
reactions to Billy Graham as he becomes a a phenomenon in the United States because he is just so critical of the entire revival evangelistic uh, appeal and specifically the the commitment cards right the dedication cards you come forward you you fill out the card you give it to them and they collect those which is great for data collection like that, that that's a real benefit for them i think especially after the first um first couple they really did try to connect the people who had made dedications into local churches. They really came in to the, you know, they came into the community weeks before the event, try to, you know, establish these ties with local congregations, the congregations would send volunteers that you would, you know, if you do a dedication, you're supposed to have an opportunity to talk to someone afterward to kind of debrief and they'll give you resources for a local church that they think will fit you, right? They're not working with any particular church, uh, but they genuinely do want to, connect people to a local church because, and this was Niebuhr's point, Billy Graham would come through uh, New York City and do his three nights uh, of, of preaching and they would have, uh, you know, 120,000 commitments or whatever. And not a single church would get a new member. <laughs> right. Like, right. And uh, pastors in cities where uh, he held these crusades would report, yeah, uh, 65 people who have been attending my church for 10 years, they all went and turned in commitment cards. So it was happening right. both ways, right? right? It just, uh, and, and for, for Niebuhr, the easy decisionism of just filling out the card and handing it in and there's your fire insurance. And otherwise it's a, a message completely devoid of any particularity or, or particular content um, that just, just theologically it drove, drove him crazy. But it was not devoid of this right-wing right. political content. And I think it's worth, you know, I've been talking about the, the godless anti-communism, and that is a lot of it. He does a lot of that. But I think it's worth going through some specifics um, of some of the things he said while we're talking about him, because it's so hard to get out of the mindset of, like, Billy Graham, evangelist, Billy Graham one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, whatever, and really did dig into the particularity of, of what he is. I remember when I was in homiletics in undergrad, two, two semesters, and uh, each semester you had to choose someone to give a presentation on, you know, a great preacher from history. Um, but it was the same list. You just couldn't, you, on, I think on the honor system, you weren't supposed to pick the same person twice. Um, but both times, Billy Graham was the first name somebody picked. He must be pretty important. I should look into this. <laughs> this. Okay, so this is coming from Francis Fitzgerald's The Evangelicals. She says, in his revivals, Graham rarely failed to bring up the threat of communism, atomic weapons, and World War III. Indeed, these secular dangers often seem to substitute for the fear of hell or the coming of Armageddon that previous revivalists had used to spur to conversion. However, he often described men and nations as the instruments of higher powers. My own theory about communism, he said in September 1957, is that it is masterminded by Satan. I think that there is no explanation for the tremendous gains of communism in which they seem to outwit us at every turn unless they have supernatural power and wisdom and intelligence given to them. Compromise with the communists was therefore impossible. Quote, either communism must die or Christianity must die, he said, because it's actually a battle between Christ and Antichrist. Like most dispensationalists, Graham maintained that the Antichrist had arisen in Russia, and each new Middle Eastern crisis, from the rise of uh, Nasser in Egypt to, to the nationalization of Iranian oil to the deployment of American troops in Lebanon in 1958, provided him with an occasion to predict that Armageddon would take place when, quote, the armies of the North moved mm. on the Middle East. Right, so he's, he's doing a lot of, like, 1980s AM radio... Uh, you know, far-right Christian conspiracy right. theorizing. But he has this stature as the, the great evangelist. And so all of that, I think, kind of goes unremarked, although, you know, the relationship of his kids to, to the Republican Party, I mean, and some of his later stuff. Well, so, so I think what is, he's, the, the whole Christian libertarian, libertarianism movement wholeheartedly embraces Graham. Uh, 
and he does not reject their embrace, right? He, he shares a lot of the same political concerns and he's more than happy to use their promotion um, to, to build his platform and his leverage. And so what becomes very notable is that in the early 1930s, politically conservative Christianity had basically no, no sway on American politics. And by the election of Dwight D. Eisenhower in early 1950s, um, Billy Graham is there with Eisenhower, right? A, a, a close advisor to Eisenhower. So in the span of 20 years, um, we see thanks in large part to funding from um, corporate America, big business, um, through the likes of James Fifield and uh, others to Billy Graham, all of a sudden now Christian political conservatism has influence in the White House itself, right? Um, and so in the span of 20 years, we've, we've seen a major shift in um, American Christian conscience to the point where, where these conversations that were basically happening um, in, in back rooms, so to speak, are now taking place on, on center stage. Uh, and the whole landscape of American religion has shifted dramatically. So who is today's uh, <laughs> Billy Graham? That's a good question. That's a good question. I guess one of the things I want to make sure, you know, emphasize in this is um, you know, the, the way that the story is told. Because that's that's one of the things that Cruz addresses in his book. You know, we we talk about things like how the Pledge of Allegiance has the line in there, "One Nation Under God," right? How our our money has in God we trust on it, and we're told that this has always been part of American history, but these things were not added until the election of President Eisenhower, right? One Nation Under God wasn't added to the Pledge of Allegiance until 1954. It was a direct consequence of this whole movement by, by corporate America to introduce God back into American life for the sole reason of promoting free enterprise and capitalism. Um, so that this whole narrative that, that America has always been a Christian nation where Christian nation means politically conservative, right? Because we could argue that, that FDR thought that he was being Christian in his implementation of, of the New Deal. But this idea that we've always been this individualistic nation that, that um, you know, God has been, you know, in our Pledge of Allegiance and Currency is just false, right? That this was an invention um, that came about now uh, we're not to say insincerely, but at the instigation of some very rich people who are wanting primarily to push back against democratic policies that are cutting into their corporate profits. And so they, they're using clergy. Now that doesn't mean that the people don't believe it. It doesn't mean that the clergy who are promoting it aren't sincere but these are things that are developments that happen for these reasons. Um, and I, I think that matters. And I think that matters today as we look back at the root, you know, the arguments, because even today you go to some of these, um, you know, patriotic services at some of these, you know, evangelical mega churches and the message is, well, we've always been a Christian nation founded on Christian principles. Um, and it's always been a fabric of, of who we are as a nation. And it's just not true. It's false on its face, and I think that's one of the one of the things that Kevin Cruz does a really good job of highlighting um, in this book is that political conservatism and Christianity have not always walked in lockstep. That has been a development in the last hundred years. For your question, who, who's the who's the modern day Billy Graham? I don't know. I mean, you've you've got some wild extremists like Greg Locke. Um, but you know, in, in some cases, he, he, Eric Metaxas, Eric, Eric Metaxas, um, uh, you know, <laughs> my pillow guy. <laughs> uh, um, and, and to small, like you know, I don't know who has the, I don't know who has the wide 
the wide appeal that Billy Graham had. Um, yeah, in some right. ways, it's not directly right. analogous, right? The the, the two situations. Um, but I would say that I mean we don't also don't need a Billy Graham because that is that is the pervasive attitude in evangelicalism. Right, right, right. The the construction of a false American past yes. is so useful today. I mean, think about the language of right. the Dobbs decision, which says, you know, rooted in, you know, rooted deeply in American history. Well, if like that's a political concept. We're th- if we're think if we're arguing that what's appropriate is what's deeply rooted in American history, and our perception of American history has been dramatically distorted, then that's an, a, a major ideological victory by one side in, in right. the political right. debate. And you know, you talk about free enterprise. I, I don't want to go too uh, too deep into the the evils of free enterprise and what that benign-sounding term actually covers up. But consider that for the, the capitalists who are uh, bankrolling this, uh, this movement in the 1940s, they are less distanced historically from child labor in the right. United States than we are from <laughs> Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like, right. Like so when they t- when they talk about free enterprise, when they talk about you know bringing in New Deal policies that that build housing for people or establish the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, or create social security, they're, they're really wanting to get back to some some wild west libertarian draconian uh, yeah stuff right like the forty the forty hour and work that's week. that's what they're fighting yeah. for that's what they're investing. Like, in. That's socialism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, that's an affront <laughs> to them because, yeah, precisely. Because simultaneously, everyone's terrified of the communists, but also, you know, FDR comes into office and is in conflict with the Supreme Court and has the temerity to to challenge them and say, if you if you overturn the next one, then I'm just going to pack the court. And they believed it, and they did not overturn the next one. And in fact, and in fact. Uh, had such an about face in the the nature of their uh, at least their public uh, statements to their reasoning that it fundamentally changed the court for uh, seventy five years, right? And so, but the point is the the idea that the Supreme Court is reliably on the side of the uh, big pocket capitalist that what was called the right. Lochner era that's over, right? So they don't have the protections of the Supreme Court striking down anything FDR wants to do, so that you can't. You know, employ the the very young chim- chimney sweeps with their their tiny little hands. They can get into the tiny little right, chimney crevices. Right. But yeah, I think that is worth pointing out is that the the kinds of policies that these these corporate financiers are opposing are the kinds of things that are just commonplace now that not even most conservatives would oppose, right? We're talking about basic like workplace safety conditions, Um, you know, weekends, overtime, 40-hour work week, safe working conditions. These are the kinds of things that were regarded as socialism uh, back in the day. I think it was, was it Harry Truman who said that basically uh, they've called socialism everything that has benefited the the basic person. I I forget the exact quote. Senator Taft left that meeting and told the press what the general stands for. Taft explained that the great issue in this campaign is creeping socialism. Now that's a patented trademark of the special interest lobbies. Socialism is a scare word they have hurled at every advance the people have made in the last 20 years. Socialism is what they call public power. Socialism is what they call social security. Socialism is what they call farm price supports. Socialism is what they call bank deposit insurance. Socialism is what they call the growth of free and independent labor organizations. Socialism is their name for almost anything. It helps all the people. but the, the things that they're opposing are things that if we tried to do away with now, there would be, there would be mass hysteria. Um, 
they really were going back to what we would consider draconian labor conditions um, under the guise of this is, you know, freedom under God, which is which is Fifield's sort of banner slogan. So I, I think that is worth pointing out. In June 2nd, 1924, Congress approved a constitutional amendment that would authorize Congress to regulate labor for persons under 18 years of age and submitted it to the states for ratification. Only five states ratified the amendment. Yeah. Uh, so the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1949, it was, it was legislation that updated, um, I'm reading from history.house.gov here, mm-hmm. um, quote, the legislation updated the landmark Federal Labor Standards Act of 1938 that measure, widely considered the last major legislative accomplishment of the New Deal, provided for a 40-hour work week, outlawed child labor, and set a minimum wage of 25 cents per hour, uh, which increased to 40 cents over a seven-year period. So these are the kinds of things that, that were being uh, opposed as socialism. The outlawing of child labor, the, you know, the institution of saying people can only be made to work 40 hours a week, not paying them overtime. And if they work 40 hours a week, you still have to pay them you know, a, a, a staggering 25 cents an hour. It is worth noting that in all of this, you know, as we talk about this, Billy Graham still comes out as a moderate, right? In, in the midst of all of this, in his, in his anti-labor, in his anti-communism, and anti-immigration, all of this, he still comes out as a moderate. And he, the, the fundamentalists of the day actually break ranks with him officially, Cruz documents this in his book. Officially, they break ranks with him because he's willing to work with some of the more mainline Protestants who don't fully affirm, you know, the full inerrancy of the Bible. But in reality, they break ranks with him because he is more wishy-washy on segregation than they are. They end up backing candidates like, you know, Strom Thurmond. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about like Falwell and Bob Jones Jr. and some of the other more far right people. So in, in the midst of all of this, we're talking about Billy Graham and we're sort of criticizing him as being, you know, on the far right. But there's a whole contingency of uh, fundamentalist Christians who are um, incensed over things like segregation and civil rights um, and think that Billy Graham just doesn't go far enough in protecting, you know, individualism um, and doesn't go far enough in opposing integration and opposing civil rights. And they're supporting some of these more explicitly racist candidates and policies all within the same mix. An example of his refusal to oppose integration too directly Let's see. Again, this is coming from Fitzgerald's book. In 1956, Eisenhower, whose chances for re-election could have been harmed by racial strife, wrote Graham and asked him to help promote both tolerance and progress in our race relations problem. Graham agreed. In a series of meetings with a range of black and white Southern religious leaders, he counseled gradualism. I believe the Lord is helping us, he said, and if the Supreme Court will go slowly and the extremists on both sides will quiet down, we can have a peaceful social readjustment over the next 10-year period. Attacked by both segregationists and northern liberals, he continued to seek a middle ground. So that's a, an example of what was too to pro-integration for the, right, uh, right. For the far right. And side. I think it's worth just at least mentioning in passing here, uh, Anthea Butler's book, White Evangelical Racism, where, where she, you know, I, I don't think she'd disagree that, that Graham was more in the center, but uh, that, that racism uh, really played a, a primary role in a lot of the opposition to liberal policies. The, the Christian right and the Christian far right really were animated by a desire to maintain segregation, to oppose civil rights. And they did so on um, explicitly theological and um, at least ostensibly biblical arguments. Um, right, And so while that wasn't always necessarily at the forefront of the argumentation, it was always an animating principle behind the Christian far right's uh, embrace of far right political conservatism as opposition to integration and, and civil rights for African Americans. I was going to say it earlier, and now we're off the subject, but um, one of the quotes I had selected from Orban says, 
a politician should have eight to ten big capitalists who are clearly <laughs> our people. He also says a, a Christian politician can never be racist. So that uh, that fits in well on, on both counts with what we're trying to talk about here, which is the you know sort of the the capitalist and racist underpinnings foundations of the the modern Christian far right. How much do you think there's a I don't know. How much do you think you can draw a straight line from the fundamentalist movement to the moral majority, let's say? So I, I don't think the fundamentalist movement was primarily political. I think a lot of it, and I think there were political undertones to it, certainly. But I think the, the fundamentalist movement was primarily theological. I don't think that I believe that about the moral majority. I think the moral majority was primarily about maintaining a social, socially white patriarchal society. And they found in conservative Christians a, a willing and enthusiastic base to do that. Um, so I, I think it's certainly a descendant of the fundamentalist, and especially when you take the theological fundamentalism and the corporate political conservatism and the backlash against um, feminism and racial integration, you know, I think you can say that the, the moral majority is a love child of, of those movements um, that represents all three of them, if that communicates. Yeah, so much of... So much of what animates the, yes. the right in general yes. is reaction, right? Reaction and a, and a clinging to what you perceive as being taken away, and it can drive to desperation, and out of that weird chimera and hybrids. So it is it is interesting to and kind of difficult sometimes to right. uh, define these lineages because obviously there's there is a fundamentalist. Not move. It's not a movement. There is a you know a fund. There are pockets of fundamentalist churches, and fundamentalism still has its advocates in you yeah. know within certain denominations today. I don't know because what do you do with something like like founders ministry? Because I think it's both political I and yeah, I, I think it's, it's certainly both. And I think it's I think they're in a symbiotic relationship with each other. Right. They, they, they feed off of each other. They, they support each other in that sense. Um, it, it helps maintain a cultural vision that they are comfortable with, a cultural status quo. Um, and it's, it's easy. It's, I don't mean to be super pejorative here, but it's anti-intellectual. Um, it, it appeals to a very rigid right and wrong, very rigid view of the world. There's very little gray. It's all black and white. And I think in, in that sense, they go hand in hand together. Yeah, I think there's a sense in which for the fundamentalist movement in particular, the civil rights movement becomes sort of decisive. And it really forces the, the most politically reactionary elements of the fundamentalist movement to yeah. really go into to right. radicalism. What And and there are multiple pockets in which that can manifest, but it, it kind of really pushes them into that space such that other other fundamentalists or fundamentalist adjacent individuals or movements or groups either go with them into radicalism or really have to hands off, kind of cleave right. more toward the mainstream, right? Which is kind of what contemporary mainstream Southern yes. Baptist Church yeah. is descended of. And then right. you have people like Al Mohler, who 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 tries to to thread you know thread that needle <laughs> as, as best he can by not you know capitulating too far to Founders Ministry, but then seems to be moving more and more in that direction, as it seems like that's where the power and the influence is going to be coming from. Right, right. But I think the reactionary nature of the right means that at least since the age of mass media. What their react, and especially with, and also with the declining influence of right. Christian institutions in the United States, 
that what you have now it just um the they're the fundamentalists or those with the fundamentalist impulse or no, not even the fundamentalist impulse the reactionary impulse the conservative what drives you to the right um that impulse it's so it's so inherently reactionary and what they're reacting to is not the developments of christendom in the united right. states or of the churches broadly like imagine them caring right. about the world council of churches right what they're reacting to right. is trump's house got raided by the fbi like that like they're just reacting to the same things that shape americans generally and so in a, in some ways the it breaks down yes. the distinction between the yes. christian right and the right generally except right. in the most fundamentalist cases because in those cases they're really committed to like um tychonism or what a, you know flat some variation of flat earth <laughs> or you know king king james only or double predestination like people have been driven into all sorts of right. <laughs> wild right. fringe beliefs but i th i think it is clear in all of this that while we can't necessarily draw straight clean lines from you know james fifield to james white <laughs> um the lines are 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 connected enough right that the the same kind of arguments that any kind of government action that benefits the majority of people is somehow socialism and therefore anti-christian um the individualist nature of both the gospel and american identity um, you know, decrying racial justice or, you know, gender-based justice as some sort of cultural Marxism or critical race theory. I think these are the same kinds of tactics, the same kind of messages that are identical to what we see from Fifield and his organizations and from Graham to a lesser extent. Um, and so the the people who are doing it today are direct beneficiaries of the tactics of the ideas um, of the messaging that we see beginning in the, in the late 1930s for sure. So what's, what's next for our mini series? Are we going to look at the decades of the sixties and seventies and kind I mean, of get, trace some of those yeah. lines or what's, I the, think that makes sense. Where's the, where's know, the next stop got, on this train? Uh, Graham with Eisenhower, I think, um, the the influence of the evangelicals on Nixon, um, and certainly the emergence of Reagan as the conservative evangelical Protestant poster boy, um, with you know abortion and segregation and uh, you know the, the moral moral majority and all of those things as sort of the next iteration of far right Christian political activism. I think so. Yeah. So post-war into the 80s. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, this has been another episode of All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. We're uh, continuing our journey looking at the historical roots of the modern Christian far right religious and political relationship. Those of you who have watched this long and continue with us, we're grateful for your partnership as you watch, as you comment, as you review, as you rate. Uh, for those of you who are financial supporters on Patreon, we are grateful for your financial support. And we hope that you find this information helpful, meaningful. Uh, as we look at the, the world today, we think that it's important. And we're grateful that you're along for the ride with us. We'll catch you next time. Bye.